Book One, Chapter Nine of *The Mill on the Floss*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daisy Fifty Five. *The Mill on the Floss* by George Eliot. Book One, Boy and Girl. Chapter Nine, to Garwin Furs. While the possible troubles of Maggie's future were occupying her father's mind, she herself was tasting only the bitterness of the present. Childhood has no forebodings, but then, it is soothed by no memories of outlived sorrow. The fact was, the day had begun ill with Maggie. The pleasure of having Lucy to look at, and the prospect of the afternoon visit to Garran Firs, where she would hear Uncle Pullet's musical box, had been married as early as eleven o'clock by the advent of the hairdresser from St. Orgs, who had spoken in the severest terms of the condition in which he had found her hair, holding up one jagged lock after another and saying, "See here, tut tut tut." In a tone of mingled disgust and pity, which to Maggie's imagination was equivalent to the strongest expression of public opinion, Mister Rapid, the hairdresser, with his well-anointed coronal locks tending wavily upward, like the stimulated pyramid of flame on a monumental urn, seemed to her at that moment the most formidable of her contemporaries. Into whose street at Saint Orgs she would carefully refrain from entering through the rest of her life. Moreover, the preparation for a visit being always a serious affair in the Dodsons' family, Martha was enjoined to have Mrs. Tulliver's room ready an hour earlier than usual, that the laying out the best clothes might not be deferred till the last moment, as was sometimes the case. And families of laxed views, where the ribbon strings were never rolled up, where there was little or no wrapping in silver paper, and where the sense that the Sunday clothes could be got at quite easily produced no shock to the mind. Already at twelve o'clock, Miss Tulliver had on her visiting costume, with a protective apparatus of brown holland. As if she had been a piece of satin furniture in danger of flies, Maggie's was frowning and twisting her shoulders that she might, if possible, shrink away from the prickliness of Tucker's, while her mother was remonstrating, "Don't, Maggie, my dear, don't make yourself so ugly." And Tom's cheeks were looking particularly brilliant, as a relief to his best blue suit, which he wore with becoming calmness. Having, after a little wrangling, affected what was always the one point of interest to him in his toilet, he had transferred all the contents of his everyday pockets to those actually in wear. As for Lucy, she was just as pretty and neat as she had been yesterday. No accidents ever happened to her clothes, and she was never comfortable, uncomfortable in them. So that she looked with wondering pity at Maggie, pouting and writhing, 
under the exasperating tucker. Maggie would certainly have torn it off if she had not been checked by the remembrance of her recent humiliation about her hair. As it was, she confined herself to fretting and twisting and behaving peevishly about the card houses which they were allowed to build till dinner, as a suitable amusement for boys and girls in their best clothes. Tom could build perfect pyramid of houses, but Maggie's would never bear the laying on the roof. It was always so with the things that Maggie made, and Tom had deduced the conclusion that no girls could ever make anything. But it happened that Lucy proved wonderfully clever at building. She handled the cards so lightly and moved so gently that Tom condescended to admire her houses as well as his own, the more readily because she had asked him to teach her. Maggie, too, would have admired Lucy's houses and would have given up her own unsuccessful building to contemplate them without ill temper if her tucker had not made her peevish and if tom had not inconsiderately laughed when her houses fell and told her she was a stupid don't laugh at me tom she burst out angrily i am not a stupid i know a great many things you don't oh i dare say miss spitfire i've never be such a cross as you making faces like that lucy doesn't do it I like Lucy better than you. I wish Lucy was my sister. Then it's very wicked and cruel of you to wish so, said Maggie, starting up hurriedly from her place on the floor and upsetting Tom's wonderful pagoda. She really did not mean it, but the circumstantial evidence was against her, and Tom turned white with anger, but said nothing. He would have struck her, only he knew it was cowardly to strike a girl and Tom Tolliver was quite determined he would never do anything cowardly. Maggie stood in dismay and terror while Tom got up from the floor and walked away, pale from the scattered ruins of his pagoda, and Lucy looked on mutely, like a kitten pausing from his lapping. Oh, Tom, said Maggie at last, going halfway toward him, I didn't mean to knock him down, indeed, indeed I didn't. Tom took no notice of her, but took instead two or three hard peas out of his pocket and shot them with his thumbnail against the window, vaguely at first, but presently with the distinct aim of hitting a superannuated blue bottle which was exposing its imbecility in the spring sunshine, clearly against the views of nature, who had provided Tom and the peas for the speedy destruction of this weak individual. Thus the morning had been made heavy to Maggie, and Tom's persistent coldness to her all through their walk spoiled the fresh air and sunshine for her. He called Lucy to look at the half-built bird's nest, without caring to show it to Maggie, and peeled a willow switch for Lucy and himself without offering one to Maggie. Lucy had said, Maggie, shouldn't you like one? but Tom was deaf. Still, the sight of the peacock opportunely spreading his tail on a stockyard wall just as they reached Garvin Firs was enough to divert the mind temporarily from her personal grievances. 
and this was only the beginning of beautiful sights at Garwin Firs. All the farmyard life was wonderful there. Battens, speckled and top-knotted, Friesland hens with their feathers all turned the wrong way, guinea fowls that flew and screamed and dropped their pretty spotted feathers, poulter pigeons and a tame magpie, nay, a goat, and a wonderful brittle dog, half mastiff, half bulldog, as large as a lion. Then there were white railings and white gates all about, and glittering weathercocks of various design, and garden walks paved with pebbles in beautiful patterns. Nothing was quite common at Garwin Firs, and Tom thought that the unusual side of the toads there was simply due to the general unusualness which characterized Uncle Poulet's possessions as a gentleman farmer. Toads who paid rent were naturally leaner. As for the house, it was not less remarkable. It had a receding center and two wings with battlemented turrets and was covered with glittering white stucco. Uncle Poulet had seen the expected party approaching from the window and made haste to unbar and unchain the front door kept always in this fortified condition from fear of tramps who might be supposed to know the glass case of stuffed birds in the hall and to contemplate rushing in and carrying it away on their heads. Aunt Poulet too appeared at the doorway and as soon as her sister was within hearing said stop the children for God's sake Bessie don't let them come up the doorsteps. Sally's bringing the old mat and the duster to rub their shoes. Miss Poulet's front door mats were by no means intended to wipe shoes on. The very scrapper had a deputy to do its dirty work. Tom rebelled particularly against this shoe wiping, which he always considered in the light of an indignity to his sex. He felt it as the beginning of the disagreeables incident to a visit at Aunt Poulet's where he had once been compelled to sit with towels wrapped around his boots, a fact which may serve to correct the too hasty conclusion that a visit to Garwin Furs must have been a great treat to a young gentleman fond of animals. Fond, that is, of throwing stones at him. The next disagreeable was confined to his feminine companions. It was the mounting of the polished oak stairs which had very handsome carpets rolled up and laid by in a separate bedroom, so that the ascent to these glossy steps might have served, in barbarous times, as a tribe or ordeal from which none but the most come off with unbroken limbs. Sophie's weakness about these polished stairs was always a subject of bitter ministrance on Mrs. Cleague's part, ventured in no comment, only thinking to herself if she and the children were safe on the landing. Mrs. Gray has sent home my new bonnet, Bessie, said Mrs. Poulet in a pathetic tone as Mrs. Tulliver adjusted her cap. Has she, sister, said Mrs. Tulliver with an air of much interest, and how do you like it?
"'It's apt to make a mess with clothes, taking them out and putting them in again,' said Mrs. Poulet, drawing a bunch of keys from her pocket and looking at them earnestly. "'But it ud be a pity for you to go away without seeing it. "'There's no knowing what may happen.' Mrs. Poulet shook her head slowly at this last serious consideration, which determined to her to single out a particular key. I'm afraid it'll be troublesome to you getting it out, sister, said Mrs. Tulliver, but I should like to see what sort of a crown she's made you. Mrs. Poulet rose with a melancholy air and unlocked one wing of a very bright wardrobe where you may have hastily supposed she would find a new bonnet. Not at all. Such a supposition could only have arisen from a too superficial acquaintance with the habits of the Dobson family. In this wardrobe, Miss Poulet was seeking something small enough to be hidden among layers of linen. It was a door key. You must come with me into the best room, said Mrs. Poulet. May the children come too, sister? inquired Mrs. Tulliver, who saw that Maggie and Lucy was looking rather eager. Well, said Aunt Poulet reflectively, it'll perhaps be safer for them to come. They'll be touching something if we leave them behind. So they went in procession along the bright and slippery corridor, dimly lighted by the similar lunar top of the window which rose above the closed shutter. It was really quite solemn. Aunt Poulet paused and unlocked a door which opened on something still more solemn than the passage, a darkened room, in which the outer light, entering feebly, showed what looked like the corpses of furniture and white shrouds. Everything that was not shrouded stood with its legs upward. Lucy laid hold of Maggie's frock and Maggie's heart beat rapidly. Aunt Poulette half opened the shutter and then unlocked the wardrobe with a melancholy of deliberateness which was quite in keeping with the funeral solemnity of the scene. The delicious scent of rose leaves that issued from the wardrobe made the process of taking out sheet after sheet of silver paper quite pleasant to assist at. Though the sight of the bonnet at last was an anticlimax to Maggie, who would have preferred something more strikingly preternatural, but few things could have been more impressive to Mrs. Tulliver. She looked all round it in silence for some moments, and then said emphatically, Well, sister, I'll never speak against the full crowns again. It was a great concession, and Mrs. Poulet felt it. She felt something was due to it. You'll like to see it on, sister, she said sadly. I opened the shutter a bit further. Well, if you don't mind taking off your cap, sister, said Mrs. Tulliver. Mrs. Poulet took off her cap, displaying the brown silk scalp with a jutting promontory of curls, which was common to the more mature and judicious woman of those times, and placing the bonnet on her head, 
turned slowly round like a dapper lay figure that Mrs. Tulliver might miss no point of view. I've sometimes thought there's a loop too much of ribbon on this left side, sister. What do you think? said Mrs. Poulet. Mrs. Tulliver looked earnestly at the point indicated and turned her head on one side. Well, I think it's best as it is. If you meddle with it, sister, you might repent. That's true, said Aunt Paulette, taking off the bonnet and looking at it contemplatively. How much might she charge you for that bonnet, sister, said Mrs. Tulliver, whose mind was actively engaged in the possibility of getting a humble imitation of this chef de lure made from a piece of silk she had at home. Mrs. Poulette screwed up her mouth and shook her head and then whispered, Poulette pays for it. He said I was to have the best bonnet at Garland Church. Let the next best be whose it would. She began slowly to adjust the trimmings in preparation for returning it to its place in the wardrobe, and her thoughts seemed to have taken a melancholy turn, for she shook her head. Ah, she said at last, I may never wear it twice, sister, who knows? Don't talk of that, old sister, answered Mrs. Tulliver. I hope you'll have your health this summer. Ah, but there may come a death in the family, as there did soon after I had my green satin bonnet. Cousin Abbott may go, and we can't think of wearing crepe less nor half a year for him. That would be unlucky, said Mrs. Tulliver, entering thoroughly into the possibility of an inopportune decease. There's never so much pleasure I wearing a bonnet the second year, especially when the crowns are so chancy. Never two summers alike. Ah, it's the way I this world, said Mrs. Poulet, returning the bonnet to the wardrobe and locking it up. She maintained a silence characterized by head shaking until they had all issued from the solemn chamber and were in her own room again. Then began to cry. She said, Sister, if you should never see that bonnet again till I'm dead and gone, you'll remember I showed it you this day. Mrs. Tulliver felt that she ought to be affected, but she was a woman of sparse tears, stout and healthy. She couldn't cry so much as her sister Poulette did, and had often felt her deficiency at funerals. Her effort to bring tears into her eyes issued in an odd contradiction of her face. Maggie, looking attentively, felt that there was some painful mystery about her aunt's bonnet, which she was considered too young to understand, indignantly conscious all the while that she could have understood that as well as everything else if she had been taken into confidence when they went down uncle Poulet observed with some acumen that he reckoned the missus had been showing her bonnet that was what had made them so long upstairs with tom the interval had seemed still longer for he had been seated in irksome constraint on the edge of a sofa directly opposite his uncle Poulet, who regarded him with twinkling gray eyes and occasionally addressed him as young sir well young sir what do you learn at school was a standing question with uncle Poulet. whereupon tom always looked sheepish 
rubbed his hands across his face and answered, I don't know. It was altogether so embarrassing to be seated tete to tete with Uncle Poulet that Tom could not even look at the prints on the wall or the fly cages or the wonderful flower pots. He saw nothing but his uncle's gaiters. Not that Tom was in awe of his uncle's mental superiority. Indeed, he had made up his mind that he didn't want to be a gentleman farmer, because he shouldn't like to be such a thin-legged, silly fellow as his uncle Poulet, a Molly Cottle. In fact, a boy's sheep sheepishness is by no means a sign of overmastering reverence. And while you are making encouraging advances to him under the idea that he is overwhelmed by a sense of your age and wisdom, ten to one he is thinking you extremely queer. The only consolation I can suggest to you is that the Greek boys probably thought the same of Aristotle. It is only when you have mastered a restive horse or thrashed a dray man or have got a gun in your hand that these shy juniors feel you to be a truly admirable and enviable character. At least I'm quite sure of Tom Tolliver's sentiments on these points. In very tender years, when he still wore a lace border under his outdoor cap, he was often observing people observe peeping through the bars of a gate and making minatory gestures with a small forefinger while he scolded the sheet with an inarticulate blur, intended to strike terror into their astonished minds, indicating thus early that desire for mastery over the inferior animals, wild and domestic, including cockchaffers, neighbors' dogs, and small sisters, which in all ages has been an attribute of so much promise for the fortunes of our race. Now, Mr. Poulet never rode anything taller than a low pony and was the least predatory of men, considering a firearms dangerous as apt to go off of themselves by nobody's particular desire. So that Tom was not without strong reasons when, in confidential talk with a chum, he had described Uncle Poulet as a nincompoop taking care at the same time to observe that he was a very rich fellow. 